Our second scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 17, beginning with the 20th verse. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Here ends our reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know this scene well. You've heard it talked about and preached about many times. Here Jesus is sitting around a table on the night in which he would be betrayed. On his last night, he's sharing a meal in the upper room with his closest friends, his disciples, his followers. According to the account in Matthew and Luke, the central focus was the bread and wine. Here in the Gospel of John, it's the washing of feet. But in both accounts, this is a most holy moment of Jesus with his disciples. And yet, even at that moment, as he glances around the table at the people that he's there, his eyes can still rest on his good, close friend, Judas, who even as he sits there has 30 pieces of silver jingling in his pocket that he got for betraying Jesus to death. And Jesus knows this. And still, he has to look across the table and be there with him. And he looks down the line and he can then see Peter, his disciple that he might have the highest hopes for, the one to go lead the church, who he knows that night will deny him three times. And each one of the people around that table have their own stories, their own own perspectives on that night, their own journeys that they will take. And even then, what strikes me is that there are these divisions within Jesus' disciples. And the words that we have here in the Gospel of John in chapter 17, these are the last words of Jesus' great discourse that he gives to his disciples in the Gospel of John. The last words he says, the last words he prays for are not just that his disciples would be one, but that also those who come to believe through them. That is to say, all of us here. And yet, 
And this gets pointed out all the time, but it's worth pointing out. And yet, we have all of these incredibly deep divisions that exist among Christians in our society today. Divisions that, divisions that sometimes are severe and serious, where certain Christians think that other Christians are outside the realm, that they're going to eternal damnation, and then other divisions that are less serious but still fracture the body of Christ. We see it all over society. And yet so often when I look at these divisions, I have to ask myself, is the intensity of them, is the depth of them really necessary? Do we need that? Isn't there a way that we can get beyond that? Is there something we can do? The last month, one of these uh, issues in the United States that seems to cause divisions all the time within the body of Christ has been uh, particularly poignant, and that's an issue uh, that I've actually never mentioned in any sermon that I've ever preached. Um, but I figured, why not now? As long as we're talking about divisions, we might as well go talk about some of the big ones. Uh, in this case, I'm, I'm referencing abortion debate. Talk about something that divides Christians uh, and people in society sharply. My mother is a lifelong Republican and one of the least activist people you will ever see in your entire life. But I remember her telling me that if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, you will see her in the streets. And I'm like, talk about uh, eliciting strong emotions. For my mother to get out and hold a sign and walk in the streets, that, that's saying something. The interesting thing is, with all of this discussion about abortion, it shows up in the Bible almost never. Uh, one of the only references to abortion that comes up actually is an obscure passage in Numbers 5 that talks about... Um, a woman who uh, is suspected of having had sexual relations outside of marriage. And so she's supposed to present herself to a priest, and the priest will give her this drink, this poisonous drink, that will, if she's been unfaithful, lead to an abortion of the, of, of the fetus. That's one of the only times it comes up, actually, in the entire Bible. Then there's... Obviously, the notion in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew Bible, that what gives you life and makes you a person is your nephesh, your soul, your breath. And this is how, again, how does, how does Adam come to be in the beginning of Genesis? By getting the breath of God. That there's this sense of when you die then, the breath of God leaves you, your nephesh, your soul leaves you uh, in the Hebrew tradition. So you see this link between life and breath, which would indicate that life begins with breath. In an ancient tradition, ancient context, at least an ancient Hebrew context. You also see, of course, a, a, a psalm like Psalm 139 that talks very movingly of you being knit together in your mother's womb. So there's this sense of God's creative power being in the womb. What do we do with that? But in spite of that, there really aren't that many passages that talk about this. And in fact, a lot of the thinking about, about abortion in the United States today actually comes from Roman Catholic uh, theological ethics. So Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages uh, embraced the writings of Aristotle. Uh, and Aristotle uh, is someone who, within his ethics, deals with something known as teleology, which is you judge the ethics of something based on its end goal, its end purpose. So for Roman Catholics, since Aristotelian teleology has always been so important to them, uh, the reason why abortion is bad is because you're interrupting what would have been a normal process. 
So when there's ever there's an abortion, you're interrupting that process, and therefore it's getting in the way of God's purpose. The same, the same reasoning, by the way, applies to Roman Catholic thinking on sexual ethics. The reason why when you have, again, this whole thing of the reason why you can't use birth control is because you're getting in the way of the natural end. The natural end of sex is to produce a child. And therefore, if you're doing something to prevent the production of a child, like birth control, you're getting in the way of that. This Aristotelian teleology, that's the way it works. Same thing with same-sex relationships in a Roman Catholic context. You know, the, if, if the whole purpose is of sexual intimacy is to procreate, any sexual intimacy that's non-procreative uh, and can't be procreative is therefore sinful. And it's amazing how, again, you look at back uh, before Roe v. Wade, uh, a group as conservative as the Southern Baptist Convention did not have any statements against abortion. And there were a range of opinions there because there are different ways that you can read it given sort of Christian ethical teachings. But today, the most more conservative Christians embrace what really is, what really had been a Roman Catholic position when you, when you look at it. And again, it's got a lot of issues with it, which has been pointed out many times. Um, you know, does life begin when the egg and sperm meet? If so, uh, you know, the use of a birth control pill is clearly not permitted. Because what does a birth control pill do? It only prevents implantation. It doesn't prevent fertilization. My roommate in Iowa, who's a doctor, <clears throat> used to always say it's actually in the implantation where the mother's body begins to change. Not when the fertilization of the egg happens, but when the egg gets implanted in the uterine wall that then begins the whole process of the body changing. Maybe that should be the point. Some people say, no, it's when you can have a heartbeat. Well, when is that? And why choose a heartbeat rather than a breath? How does that work? This is it's complicated issues. Then, of course, there's the secular response. The secular response in our society, as I'm sure you're aware, um, goes back to a very interesting Supreme Court decision in 1966 that actually had to do with uh, Puritan Connecticut. <laughs> Connecticut had a law of the books that prevented birth control. And so there was a famous uh, Supreme Court case in 1966, Griswold versus Connecticut, that overturned uh, birth control uh, legislation, you know, birth control, you know, legislation that prevents birth, selling of birth control across the country. Uh, striking down this old Puritan, uh, Puritanical law. Well, the reason they, they justified, the Supreme Court, the Warren Court, justified that based on the fact that in the 14th Amendment, there is a penumbra, uh, the penumbra, the shadow of the 14th Amendment, enshrines a right to privacy. Um, and that same thing was being used during Roe v. Wade then to justify uh, allowing abortion. It said there's a right to privacy in the Constitution. And therefore, particularly in the first trimester, when a baby is scientifically a part of the mother's womb and cannot exist outside the mother's womb, uh, the right of abortion falls within that general rubric of a right to privacy. A very different series of rationalizations and other things. And so you have these different debates that people have back and forth. And one of the things that I was, you know, again, it's always the reason why I don't talk about this is because I'm a man. I don't really think that I really have much right to talk about this, but uh, I felt compelled to say something. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, with the, but you, when you look at the Christian viewpoint, what do we look to? We look to Jesus. And what was Jesus' perspective? How did, how did Jesus live his life and ethically? Honest question. Jesus is someone who, A, was non-legalistic. He clearly didn't, he wasn't hung up on, these are rules that are always right, always and forever. Jesus was someone who tried to say, well, where is this person now? Where is compassion? How is an individual doing? What is this individual's life? That's one thing that Jesus went about how he dealt with the world ethically, right? Uh, compassion drove things. 
Uh, He also did not have much time for societal norms that would constrain us. This is one of these ones that gets me particularly worked up. So when I was a teacher at Groton School, an Episcopal school in Massachusetts, it's a boarding school, co-ed boarding school. So of course, there's obviously pregnancies that happen at this co-ed boarding school. And so I asked the students, I said, well, let's say, what happens when, the students, when, when your students get pregnant? And they're like, oh, there's certain teachers we know we can go to who will take us to get an abortion. And I said, okay. I said, well, what if, this, what if the student wanted to carry the baby to term? Would that be an option? And the students said, oh, no, that's not an option. You get pregnant, you either get kicked out of school or you have an abortion, no other option. And I'm like, well, that doesn't strike me as being ethical or right or good. And so I went to the chaplain, again, this is an Episcopal school, went to the chaplain and I said, hey, we're not really giving these students the option to carry a baby to term if they want to because of societal norms. How is this Christian? And the chaplain said, we're not having this discussion. (laughs) I said, okay. Uh, So then I went to the headmaster and asked the same thing to the headmaster. And the headmaster said, oh no, we're not having this discussion. And I was like, come on, this is a Christian school. We can't even have this discussion. We can't even give someone the option to carry a baby to term? How is that right? How are, how are societal norms dictating this? I don't think that should be the case. This is, it's a particular personal issue for me, too, because my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, is someone who was the result of a teenage pregnancy, and her parents, her birth parents, were Roman Catholic, and decided to carry the baby to term, and then put her up for adoption. And she's now the mother of my nieces and nephew. And I'm grateful that her birth parents made that choice. Um, what's interesting is that her birth parents then later went on to be married. And so my sister-in-law actually has full-blooded siblings that she now knows. And there's, again, they're all in touch with one another. Um, but it's one of these things. I mean, I'm grateful that they, that, that they made that choice. You know, and again, what else does Jesus care about? Jesus cares about issues of justice. Anyone who's a good feminist realizes the history of patriarchy in our society, the ability to, the desire to control women's bodies, to determine what women should do. Um, reproductive rights are some sort of, sort of a basic justice issue. And to ban abortion, again, as people argue, takes away a woman's right to determine what she does with her own body. I mean, these are different issues that get brought up again and again and again. They're complicated, but I, I, I really think the Christian response comes down to individual circumstances. I know people who've had abortions, and they have their, sto- their stories. I'm sure that those in this room who've, who've had abortions, and they have the stories that you have here. But I do think the Christian response is compassion. Care for those on the margins. You know, rejecting societal norms. But what, what I just find remarkable is that Christians can't have conversations about this. We can disagree. I'm sure some of you in this room disagree with stuff I've said. That's fine. But we just can't seem to have conversations even. Even about the obvious stuff. Think about the obvious stuff. Texas. Texas. Several years ago, all of a sudden has an injunction against it for not fulfilling the law for child protective services. Think about that. Our child protective services, the very organization statewide that's responsible for taking care of children who either have to get taken away from their parents or put up for adoption. This system was so chronically underfunded that literally it was breaking the law and the judge forced the legislature to fund this. If there's anything that Christians should agree on who care about life, I mean, every Christian should get up across the state no matter what your background is and say, this is absolutely outrageous 
in one of the wealthiest economies in the entire world? We can't even have basic care for our children who are in the most need? Are you kidding me? I mean, this, I, I just can't think of something that would be more obvious. And yet, instead, there's this division over something like abortion. Room. They, they, you can't even talk across the line on abortion. How is this a reflection of the body of Christ? I and mean, this is where I read John 17, and I'm like, yes! Yes, Jesus! Um, and there are lots of other examples of that. I mean, the classic thing, if you want to really reduce abortion, what about sex education? What about other things to try and reduce unwanted pregnancies? Also, economics make a difference. If people are in poverty, it makes a difference versus people who are not. These things, you can look at these things and make a difference. We can actually have conversations about this, but we don't. These divisions get in the way. And what drives me nuts about these divisions, it's not just on an issue of abortion. It's on so many other issues. And, and I always, I mean, the cynic in me is it's all about power. It, I mean, you look at, let's say Roe v. Wade were overturned. Let's say it were overturned. You have a solid block of voters who literally go to the polls and vote and organize on that one issue. Do you think that those in power in the Republican Party actually want that overturned? They would all of a sudden start losing elections. The cynic in me is like, it'll never get overturned because it's all about power. Now, maybe I'm being too cynical, but I don't think I am. You look at this issue this past weekend, we had yet one more mass shooting. One more mass shooting. And yet again, we can't talk about guns. And yet most Americans who do polls, they actually agree on a lot of gun stuff. I mean, this is, it's just one of these things. It's like most Americans agree that we should have the right to own a gun. They agree on that. And then most Americans also agree that a five-year-old should not be able to go buy an Uzi. Or, you know, some homicidal maniac shouldn't be able to go buy a nuclear weapon. So, like, obviously we need regulations, but we can't even talk about it. You know, again, I see, I see Tony here in the front row, front pew, and I remember having a great conversation with Tony where we could have a great conversation about gun stuff because he actually knows a lot of stuff of what he's talking about and helping enlighten me and learn more. We can't have these conversations. And it all comes down to power. And this is where Christians, how do we get over this? How do we deal with this? One thing, again, we're in the United Church of Christ, this denomination, where for the UCC, they thought unity meant organic union of churches, bringing together denominations. And again, that was a bold vision in the mid-20th century, and I lauded their efforts. But fundamentally, that's just not enough. And that's not really what it's about. Because the reality is we come from different cultures, different places, Different sermons, different ways of service, different ways of worshiping God touch us in different ways. Of course, we're going to have different churches and different expressions of that. That's fine. That doesn't bother me. What I'm looking for is unity in Jesus and what that looks like and how do we get it. Here's the cool thing. Jesus promises in this same speech, John 7, this, this speech that we see in John 17, earlier in the speech that, that God will send a comforter, an advocate, a paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to guide us in Jesus' absence. There is a promise that if we actually take seriously being followers of Jesus and what unity in Christ can mean, so we can actually have hard discussions, we can sit across the table with someone and try and see how the Holy Spirit guides us and rigorously look at where is Jesus in the midst of this. We can do it. And if there's any time that we need that, in my mind, we need it now. This is a prayer for us today. Can we witness to what that looks like as Christians? Because what if it happened? Imagine what if Christians actually got together across this country, had hard conversations, modeled those conversations with others, 
advocated for things, for compassion, you know, protecting the marginalized, had good discussions, not saying you agree on things, but do that. Think of how much our society would be transformed if we just took this prayer of Jesus' seriously. This is the Easter season, the last Sunday of the Easter season, or at least, I guess, Pentecost, is when things switch over. Uh, and if you're going to live into Easter, the resurrection, what does it mean? Partly it means looking for the Holy Spirit in our lives and how that can change ourselves and our society. We have to be Easter people. And if we're going to be Easter people, we've got to take this prayer seriously. So again, I leave that as a challenge for all of you. Think about what Christian unity looks like for you or would look like for you. Think about how the model of Jesus or the presence of the Holy Spirit might change that for you and allow us to live into that. That is a challenge that this text gives us, and I hope that you can pray with me 